Hi, I'm Meredith, part of the church family here. We're reading today from John 12, verse 12 to 43. Page, it's gone, I think it was 762 in the church Bibles. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. 
for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Has someone ever done something for you so amazing that you've really wanted to show your gratitude, but whatever you can think of to do, it just seems so pathetic in comparison? You know, like maybe a a doctor has saved your life or saved the life of someone you really love, or maybe someone's found your child and and then returned them to, to you safely, or maybe you've just wanted to thank a friend who's stood by you through thick and thin through really hard times and been there. You know, you walk up and down the news agents, but, but the Hallmark cards, they, they just can't capture it. And then you try making your own and scrunch it up in disgust. And the chocolates and the flowers that you consider, they just seem insignificant. And you feel like nothing can capture your appreciation. Have you ever felt like that? Well, we just heard with the kids about Mary's act of devotion and and they're working on craft on that right now. It's the passage just before the one that was read for us by Meredith just now. I reckon she probably felt a bit like this. I reckon she probably felt at a bit of a loss as to how to show her appreciation. Jesus had raised her brother Lazarus from the dead just before. Maybe she's overwhelmed with gratitude for that. But whatever it is, whatever the reason... Mary wants to express her deep devotion to Jesus. And she doesn't go for the card or the flowers or the chocolates. She goes for an act of devotion that's so extravagant that maybe it makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. Imagine being there, smelling the perfume. I don't know whether you could smell it as I was spraying it. It's kind of a little bit hard to breathe up here. Imagine watching her stoop down and, and dry his feet with her hair. How would you feel if you were there? Well, how we would feel probably depends on whether we share Mary's devotion to Jesus or not. In this chapter, across chapter 12, we see different levels of devotion contrasted. We see Mary's deep devotion, but then we see Judas and he we see him abandoning any devotion he may have had. We see that the crowd kind of professing their devotion, but then we hear Jesus talking about the kind of devotion that he actually wants from us. So let's look at this first act of devotion, where we see in this act that Jesus is so glorious that no devotion to him, no devotion, is too extravagant. They say that that smell is actually closely linked with memory, and with emotion. Smells can powerfully transport us over, over, you know, back across decades. For me, the smell of cut grass often brings back memories from being a kid or, or eucalyptus leaves burning, not that I was a pyromaniac, but something about camping and things like that. It smells trigger emotions and memories within us. What happened at this dinner party left a lasting impression on those present. I'm sure every time they smelt perfume or even the smell of flowers, they would have been transported back to this unusual, really unusual night. And it is unusual. What Mary does is unusual for a lot of reasons. To start with, you know, she pours out half a litre of perfume. That was a lot for back then, just like it's a lot for now. The smell fills the entire house. 
And it's also unusual because she pours it on his feet. Normally this kind of perfume was for anointing the head. And it's unusual because of the expense of this perfume. I think it's hard for us to comprehend just how extravagant this gesture is. You know, we're, we're surrounded by fragrances and perfumes these days. And so perfume's not really that big a deal for us. It's often cheap, and let's be honest, sometimes nasty. And even the, the expensive stuff, really, it's relatively cheap these days. Way back, many, many, many years ago, when I was practically a teenager, I bought Kathy a perfume called Sunflowers because she liked the, the literal flowers, sunflowers. I went looking for it this week and I found it for $17 for 100 mil. So I calculated what half a litre would be and I'm pretty sure that's about $85. That's it. Now, if I sprayed out half a litre of sunflowers for the all-ages spot just before, I reckon a few people would have been thinking if he sprays that bottle one more time, I'm going to spray it in his eyes. <laughs> but I'm confident all of you would have been thinking, what a waste, half a litre sprayed out but get this the perfume that mary pours out is is far 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 more valuable spikenard would have come all the way from northern india it's worth about a year's wages for a laborer so put it in modern day equivalents here in australia thirty-seven thousand dollars and then to top it all off Mary wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, which just seems so dis- self-disrespecting, so humiliating, and yet at the, ta- the same time kind of so intimate and so personal. Mary's act of devotion here is confronting, and it proves just too much for Judas. He doesn't think her devotion is a good thing at all. Look at verse 4. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Now, this sounds pious from Judas, and in some ways it's actually a fair enough question. Though as it turns out, Judas doesn't really care about the poor. His real problem is that he's uncomfortable with Mary's devotion because it highlights his own complete lack of devotion. And he uses the poor as a cover for where his real devotion actually lies, himself. Greed, as it turns out. In the end, Judas values Jesus simply as a way to earn for himself 30 pieces of silver. But look at what Jesus says about what Mary's done in verse 7. He says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now Mary may not have realized the full significance of what she's doing, but Jesus says her extravagant devotion is entirely appropriate because it's the right thing at the right time. Because it's preparing his body for burial. Now just like when someone dies, even today, it's the right thing to honor their body. Even more so, it's right for for Mary to honour him in preparation for his death. The, The enormous value of Mary's gift is appropriate because it reflects the infinite value of what's about to be lost, Jesus' life. Do you see what this means when you sort of step back from this extravagant act of devotion and think about what it means for us? 
Can you see what it means? Jesus is saying to Mary and to Judas and to those there, there's no devotion to him that's too extravagant. Now, of course, if I bought a $37,000 bottle of perfume and smashed it here, you'd be right to think that that was a stupid and wrong thing to do. It would be. But that's because it wouldn't be the right thing at the right time. It had been an extravagant gesture of my stupidity, but it wouldn't be an extravagant gesture of showing devotion to Jesus. But if what we do actually is an act of devotion to Jesus, if what we do is rightly seeing the infinite value of what he does at the cross, if it is the right thing at the right time, then nothing we can offer in response could ever be too extravagant. It's like we sing in one of our songs and we we sang over Easter, with a whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. It's poetic, but if we see Jesus' glory, then we'll see that it's more than just poetry. It's actually true, even if we had it all. Giving all to Jesus is not too extravagant. It's actually an offering that's far too small. It's impossible to be too extravagant with Jesus. Not everyone sees it that way, of course. To many people, our devotion to Jesus, it can be confusing. To some, it's even disgusting. Even just giving up our time to go to church every Sunday seems extravagant to some people. Saying no to the the kids' sport and being here instead, it seems extravagant. Serving at church can seem strange to many. Giving money to the poor, giving money to church, giving money to send people overseas to tell people about Jesus can seem strange, inappropriate to those who don't share our devotion for Jesus. But is it? My mind this week, I couldn't help it being drawn to someone that that many of us knew. Someone who gave up career, who left family behind, who moved to Afghanistan, who served people there out of a devotion for Jesus. Is that too extravagant? Would Would giving up marriage, deciding to be single, to be able to serve Jesus more, is that too extravagant? It might be in in the eyes of those who don't share our devotion, but it's not in the eyes of Jesus. Now, don't miss what I'm saying here. Not all of us are called to offer the same gifts of devotion. You know, Jesus didn't look at the disciples there and go, all right, who's next? We've all got different means. We've all got different opportunities, different abilities, different personalities. This isn't at all about what we must offer. Do you see that? This is about... The fact that if we see Jesus' glory, then we'll see that no act of true devotion can ever be too extravagant. And another thing we should notice is it's not about making ourselves look good by doing extravagant acts. Because do you notice the way that Mary does it? She doesn't do it in a way that makes herself look good. She humbles herself. She does it in a way that actually makes her vulnerable. So just before we leave this part behind, I want to ask you a question. 
If you were to show Jesus extravagant devotion with who you are, with your life, your opportunities, what would you do? Maybe write that question down and think about it this week. If you decided you wanted to show extravagant to Jesus, what would it mean for you? So we've seen Mary's deep devotion. We've seen Judas on the cusp of abandoning all devotion. Now we hear the crowds professing their devotion. And then after that, we'll hear Jesus talking about the kind of devotion that he actually wants. Have you noticed that our whole time in John over these last few weeks, Jesus has been a bit elusive about telling the crowds whether he's the Messiah or not? Do you remember back in chapter 6 how the crowds wanted to force Jesus to become king? And so what did Jesus do? Well, he hid from the crowds. But from here on in, from this point in John, all of that changes. Look at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. And they shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They're welcoming Jesus here like he's a king returning victorious from battle. And what does Jesus do to discourage this? He doesn't do anything to discourage it. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And he does this because it fulfills scripture, Zechariah 9, which says, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. By riding this donkey, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the king. But he's saying more than what they're saying. They're wanting to welcome an easy victory. They see Jesus as simply the king of Israel. But Jesus sees things quite differently. And funnily enough, it's, it's the Pharisees in their disgust with what's happening who accidentally speak the truth. All the crowds who, who've travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover, they've travelled from all around the known world and they're going out to see Jesus, to welcome him. And amidst the cries of these thousands and thousands of people, the Pharisees are yelling to each other in verse 19, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They actually speak better than they know. Jesus is not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the whole world. But that's not what's happening here with these crowds. This is not the whole world going after him. The devotion of this crowd, it doesn't run nearly deep enough. In fact, in just a a matter of days, this same crowd, many of them, will be crying, crucify him. We see how the world is going to go after Jesus in what happens next. Look at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Basically, they find the disciple with the most Greek-sounding name. This is true, Philippos. From the town that's the closest in in Israel to a Greek-speaking country. And they single him out with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. So Philip gets some moral support from Andreas, who also has a Greek-sounding name, and he goes and asks Jesus if these Greeks can have an audience with him. And this is Jesus' reply. You ready? 
the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's a bit of a strange reply. Remember, right across John, we've, we've kept hearing that Jesus' hour hasn't yet come. But now a couple of Greeks show up and Jesus says, this is it. This is his hour. This is when he'll be glorified. And just, did you see what that glory looks like? Look at the next verse, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Do you see what Jesus is, is saying to Philip and Andrew and these Greeks here? He's saying his glory is displayed for all the world to see at the cross. Now, I imagine that Philip and Andrew would have been looking at each other at this point and kind of going, so do you reckon that was a yes or a no? Should we get them or not? It's hard to tell Jesus' answer, but his answer is basically, yes, they can see him, but where they'll see him, where they'll see him in all his glory, is lifted up on the cross, dying to win the life of others. See, the cross is how Jesus intends to draw all the nations to himself. This is what he says in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And the fact that the nations are now coming to Jesus, these Greeks wanting to see him, is the sign that the time has come for the cross to happen. The crowds wanted to celebrate an easy victory. They wanted an easy road to glory. But Jesus said the road to glory is via the cross. And actually more than that, it's actually at the cross itself that Jesus says we see him in all his glory. That doesn't mean Jesus is looking forward to it. Look at verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' glory is that he's so devoted to the Father's glory. He's so devoted to saving his people that he's willing to face the cross for the sake of others. He lays down his life in order to win new life for others. That's his glory. You won't see him any more glorious than that. But in the act of laying down his life in devotion to the Father, in devotion to you, to these Greeks, to the world. His death is like a a seed shriveled up and died, buried into the ground so that it can bring you life. It can bring a harvest. But did you notice exactly what comes from that single seed? Look at verse 24. Again, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, a kernel of wheat, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This is where devotion to Jesus gets a little bit disturbing. Who are we in this illustration? Seeds, right? And what happens to seeds in this illustration? Well, they fall to the ground and they die and they get planted to produce more seeds. 
It's a bit like Jesus saying, I'm going to lose my life to produce new life. And you're going to need to do the same. And that's exactly what Jesus says in the very next verse. Look at verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. This is our last point. Serving Jesus means following him in losing your life in this world. Jesus says if we're actually going to see his glory, then we'll see it at the cross. If these Greeks, if the crowds, if us, if anyone is going to see his glory, if we really want to see Jesus, then we'll see him for who he is at the cross. And if we truly see him for who he is, then we'll also see that we've got to follow him, which includes laying down our lives to see new life. Jesus says, if you love your life too much to do that, you'll essentially ruin your life. But if you hate your life by laying it down, you'll actually keep it safe. Now, don't get this wrong. This is not telling us to be like depressed emos with black makeup and and fingernails. That's not the point. This is a way of speaking that's all about whether you give priority to your life now without Jesus or to your life with Jesus. It's all about where your devotion lies. Is your heart, your passion, your commitment, your priority to your life in this world? Do you want to be seen as successful in this world? Do you want to fit in and be seen as normal? Do you want to be comfortable? Do you want to be happy? Do these desires, do they have your devotion? Or would you give them these things up if needed because you're more devoted to Jesus do you see the difference it's all about how you see Jesus do you see him as greater than anything else that this world has got to offer you would you rather ruin your life now than than be without him now we're not all called like Mary to that same extravagant act of devotion that we saw before but if we're a follower of Jesus we are all called to have a greater devotion to Jesus than to our life in this world. And we're all called to follow Jesus in being seeds, laying down our lives in this world for the sake of others coming to new life. So I want to finish today. And actually, I want to finish this this whole series that we've been doing in John by asking us, are we following time and time again through this series like beating a drum, we keep being asked by Jesus if we're going to follow him, if we're going to have superficial faith, belief in him, or if we're actually going to have the kind of faith that commits to following him. So I want to finish by asking a couple of questions. Are we following Jesus? Turning our backs on living for life now in this world and instead living for him? And are we laying down our lives like Jesus, to seek new life for others. And I reckon I I probably need to go a bit more specific, so I'm going to ask this to teenagers and work my way to retirees. So are you a teenager? Start good patterns now. I mean, don't lay down your life for Fortnite or for Instagram or YouTube. 
I had to Google what was popular amongst teenagers. <laughs> Surprisingly, running is popular as well. But don't pour out your life for those kind of things. Do you know, if you've got a younger brother or sister, you can have a huge impact on their lives. For Jesus. You can have a huge impact on the kids that are here buzzing amongst us right now. For Jesus. You can be here reluctantly, wishing that you weren't. Or you could pour out your life encouraging others, people your age, kids younger than you, to encouraging them to follow Jesus. It won't always be fun. But you really can make a difference. You know, even just by turning up here, even just by coming to fix regularly, you're encouraging others and pointing them to Jesus. Are you 20-something with no kids? What do you do with your spare time, if that's you? What do you do, maybe more particularly, with your spare energy? Is it spent chasing experiences? Chasing the ideal partner? Is it spent travelling? Or are you wasting your life in this world for Jesus? On kids' ministry, on youth ministry, on evangelism? You know, when you're 20 to 30, for most people, it's when you've got the most energy, the most availability for ministry. Are you using that? Are you laying down your life for Jesus and for others? Are you a parent? Well, you probably don't have spare time and... I'm certain you won't have spare energy. But still, are you pouring your life out where you can? For Jesus? Or are you pouring your life out for your kids, for racking up experiences for them, social opportunities, sporting opportunities, education opportunities? Or are you pouring out your life for Jesus in them, lovingly being willing to say that word that's now morally unacceptable? No. No, you're not going to do that. No, you're not going to have that. You know, it's life training pointing kids to Jesus. It doesn't happen by default. It takes patience. It takes prayer. It takes persistence. It takes working hard at reading God's word with them in a way that engages them. It takes setting the example, which means that it takes saying sorry often. And it really does take being willing to say no at times. It takes pouring out your life in this world to do it well, for their spiritual life. Are you an empty nester? Now, I'm not there yet. My nest is not empty. (laughs) There's four kids and a dog and five chooks. It's crazy. I don't really know what to say to you at this point. But it's still important for you to think this through. How do you pour out your life for Jesus and others at the stage that you're at? I don't know. Maybe instead of throwing yourself into work more and more, which a lot of people seem to do, do you work less so that you've got more time to volunteer, to serve Jesus? Maybe with more security in your wealth, do you do more to support more ministry, missionaries overseas? Do you invest more in friendships with people who don't know Jesus? Do you put yourself out there and actually offer to read the Bible with them? Because you'd risk looking stupid in their eyes because you're more devoted to Jesus than to what they think of you. I don't know. You have to figure that out. And again, finally, are you a retiree? I don't know what that looks like, following Jesus, laying down your life. But I do remember reading a book once, which in the blurb it talked about 
a couple in their retirement traveling, walking on the beach, collecting shells. And eventually they come along to Jesus and they say, Look, Lord, look at our shells. The book was called Don't Waste Your Life. I used to find it funny for some reason when I'd read that. Now, most retired people I know are actually exceptionally busy, but I guess the question for you is, are you busy laying down your life, doing things that people would think is a waste of retirement? Visiting sick and lonely people, maybe? Doing kids' ministry at church? Maybe reading the Bible with someone else? I don't know, again. But we need to ask those kind of questions. You know, in Sri Lanka, apparently on Easter Sunday, some kids were asked, are you willing to die for Jesus? It seems like a morbid question to us. It seems sort of out of place, but in a country like theirs, it really is something that they're forced to ask themselves because there's that real risk. And then moments later, 12 of them at Zion Evangelical Church were actually killed. Now, rarely, maybe never, do we face that question so starkly, are you willing to die for Jesus? But Jesus forces us here and in other places to ask it. He literally goes to the cross and he asks us if we'd literally be willing to follow him. Now, it's unlikely that we'll ever be called to do that. But still, we're we're called in our lives day to day to lay them down to pour out our lives, to hate the idea that we might be more devoted to anything than to Jesus. It's kind of like marriage. If if someone asked me, would I die for my wife? I reckon I'd say yes. But is that reflected in how I live day to day? Do I die to what I want? To live for what Kathy wants? I hope so. But it's the same in our lives. Our day-to-day living should reflect our devotion to Jesus. We follow him. Follow him in laying down our lives in service to him and to others. It's not easy. But it is glorious. Jesus says it won't please people, but it will please the Father. He says his Father will honour us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of Jesus that we see displayed on the cross. His willingness to die and suffer for us. His willingness, his devotion to you and to us is astounding. It really is glorious, Lord. It's life-changing. Father, as we see his glory, as we see his sacrifice, change us. Call us to be willing to chuck out any devotion that denies or interferes with our devotion to Jesus. Lord, help us to be willing to follow Jesus. Help us to desire your praise, your honour, and not the praise and honour that we can get in this life. Lord, this is hard. Keep reminding us, please, that it's also glorious. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.